For those of you who don't know, if you've never met me, if you don't really know who I am, you may have just seen me up here. My name is Ricky Ragone. Uh, I'm the music and arts youth pastor here at the church, and occasionally I get to preach, and this is one of those mornings, so occasionally you get the esteemed pleasure of hearing me. No. Um, we are continuing our series, The Gospel According to Luke, Mission to the World, and if you're not already still there from where we did our scripture reading, we will be in Luke chapter 12, looking at verses 13 through 21, 13 to 21, parable of the rich fool. But before we get where we're going, it's good to always look back at where we've been. And I'm not going to go all the way back to chapter 1, though it would be timely considering the season. Uh, but we'll just go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, because that verse is what gives us the trajectory for where this gospel account is heading. And in it, Luke says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus' attention, his, his, his face, was now focused on the mission of going to the cross. That's where he was steadfast and heading. He told his disciples earlier in that chapter, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So everything that's happening and from that point on in this book is pointing and really pushing us towards Jesus' atoning work on Calvary's hill. And Jesus is teaching, he's preparing his disciples for the day when he inevitably will not be with them in person any longer and he's equipping them and he's building into them the ability to share the gospel, to stand for the gospel when he's no longer with them. Again, in person, because we know his spirit is with them. They will be the ones on mission bringing the gospel to the world. We join them on that mission. And as we uh, move toward the cross, we start to see in these chapters why the religious leaders reject Jesus. He doesn't say the things that, that tickle their ears and stroke their egos. And we saw that a few weeks ago as Jesus held nothing back at what would have been a pretty awkward dinner for everyone sitting there when he's dining with Pharisees and the lawyers and he's just telling them of their folly. It reminds me of, get this, Seinfeld. But this one makes complete sense. Like some of the other ones, it's like, whoa, we stretched that. But this one, it's the time of year, Festivus, right? A part of Festivus is the airing of grievances. Jesus is participating in the first Festivus when he stands up and he says, I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. And he tells them, tells them of their selfishness, tells them of their pride, tells them of the deadness that they are, have in their hearts. Tells them of their overburdening of the people. He just lets them know, woe to you, over and over again. Pharisees, lawyers are like, no one's left out. It's like Oprah giving away prizes under the sea. Everybody gets a woe. And in their hardness of heart, they don't hear Jesus' words. They don't receive them. They're not humbled by them. It says, rather, they wanted to press Jesus harder to get him to say something so that they could catch him. Everything working toward the cross. 
Last week, we, we saw thousands of people now starting to gather around Jesus. Thousands. And Jesus warns his disciples of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Likening it to leaven, this, this agent that would, would cause a lump of dough to increase in size. This is what their hypocrisy is. It poisons everything. It affects everything. It's creating a culture of putting up this good front so that we look holy, but in private, there is dark sin taking place. But Jesus tells them all will be brought to light. Nothing stays in the dark. Nothing is secret from God himself. But then he tells them, don't fear these men. Don't fear men in general. Fear God himself, the ultimate authority over life and death. But not just the fear and the trembling and scared, but this awe of his holiness, of the one who created all things and is over all things. Fear him. And then we're left with this encouragement because the one who is over all things will be with them. As they stand before men who will be in opposition to the gospel. God himself will be with them. Jesus says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Why? Because the Holy, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Don't fear man because God is with you. He will be with you. And right after Jesus gets done saying that, that brings us to our text this morning. Which actually, ironically, begins with a man standing up and saying something he ought not to say. And we'll see that as we look at the selfish request, the sensible response, and the sobering reality. And as we look at this passage, the one thing I want us to walk away with is that there is only one soul-satisfying treasure, and that is Christ. I'm going to say that over and over again. Get ready. There's only one soul-satisfying treasure, and that is Christ. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? I just picture this scene. Thousands of people gathered around. And this guy stands up and he's like, I know what I got to talk to Jesus about right now. I'm going to take up this inheritance thing with him. Jesus, excuse me. Can you just tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, please? Like, could you imagine, like, could you imagine, this is not even a thousand. There's like a hundred something people in here. Could you imagine standing up and saying that in the middle of someone teaching? Don't do it. Um, <laughs> But it just seems so out of place. Now, it wasn't unreasonable for someone to go to a teacher, to go to a rabbi, to ask them to mediate in a situation like this. People went to, to rabbis all the time with, with issues such as this, family matters, I guess small claims court, whatever, to, to ask them to, to mediate, to help them work through issues like this. But not in this context. Jesus is there teaching, and this man stands up to everyone to give his demands. And it's the nature of what he says. 
He doesn't even stand up and politely ask Jesus, like, hey, afterwards, can I talk to you? i got a quick family issue I need to work with you on. He doesn't even really ask him to, to arbitrate. He's, he's asking Jesus to render a verdict. He stands up and makes this demand of Jesus. Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And the first thing Jesus does is, is not inquire more like, oh, well, tell me about this, this dispute you're having. Let me know more about it. He doesn't even hint that he's going to have anything to do with it. He says, man, this word man almost meaning like, I don't even know you, though we do know Jesus knows everyone, but man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Why? Why, why are you bringing this to me, in other words? One day Jesus will be judge over everyone and everything, and he will judge the living and the dead, ultimately. But right now, that's not Jesus' focus. Remember, all things pointing to, toward the cross. He's not concerned with the circumstances of this, of this inheritance. He doesn't ask follow-up questions about all the minutia and legalities involved. He's looking to the cross. Now, it's not to say Jesus isn't concerned about small details of our lives. But in this situation, at this time, Jesus could see clearly that this was not an issue that needed to be dealt with, the actual inheritance. He wasn't going to get involved in the family dispute. There's something greater coming, a greater kingdom, a greater inheritance. And Jesus is also not concerned with the nature of this man's request because Jesus can see clearly here it's rooted in a covetous heart. He doesn't see a man coming, pleading as his, his last-ditch effort for something. He sees a selfishness. Covetousness is this strong desire to, to have what someone else has. And it's not just this thought of, oh, man, I really wish I had that. That's cool. Like some shoes or something, though it can be. But this is like, this is like I, I hunger, I thirst, I think about this. It's, I am fixated on having this thing. And for this man, it was the, the inheritance. He did not think it was, was divided justly, and he, he needs it to be divided. He needs to have what his brother has. And it takes over. And coveting, it's not limited to possessions. We see that in the, the Ten Commandments. It's not just don't covet your neighbor's stuff. It's don't covet your neighbor's wife. Like, it's, it involves people. We can covet what other people have, the, the other people they have in their lives. We can cover, covet other people's circumstances, saying, why am I stuck with this life? I want what the other people have. It's not just about the stuff. And it's rooted in the, a, a Deep discontentment with where God has us and what God has given us. That's what this covetousness is. And this, this man is discontent with the cards he's been dealt, with the inheritance he's been dealt. It's also rooted in greed, this, this hunger for more and more. Author Jan Willem van de Wettering, won't be saying that again, describes... <laughs> Greed as a fat demon with a small mouth, and whatever you feed it is never enough. Fat demon with a small mouth. You just keep feeding it. It just can't get what it needs. It wants more, it wants more, it wants more. 
If you want to see what covetousness and greed looks like, I would invite you to hang out with a couple toddlers for a little while. <laughs> we, were just, we were just down visiting family in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Katie's family, and my son, who's 19 months, and his cousin, who's a little bit older than him, were playing with each other. And by playing with each other, I mean one would be playing with a toy over here, then the other one would come over take that toy, bring it over here. So then they're like, okay, I guess I'll play with this toy over here. And then here comes the other one. No, I want what you have. And it's just this battle of stealing toys back and forth. Because no one wants what's in the toy box that's available to them. They want what the other one has. That's what coveting is kind of in a very small thing. It's what we do as adults without being so maybe obvious about it. But unfortunately... Coveting isn't just a phase that ends in childhood. In recognizing this, Jesus gives the man a sensible response. I'll read 14 and 15. But He said, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So if Jesus is not going to take the role here of judge or arbitrator, what, what does he do? He does what, he, what he's supposed to. He's the teacher. He's the authority. He responds to this demand for part of the inheritance with words of wisdom. He gives the answer that the man needs to hear, not the, the answer the guy's looking for, not what he wants to hear. We should be thankful when God does this. How often can we relate to the guy standing up and saying, excuse me, God, I need you to do this for me. I want this and this to happen. Can you make that happen? And we stand up with our selfish requests and we ask God to, to, to not for his wisdom, but here are my demands Make this happen. And it's a good thing he doesn't always just, he's not a genie. He doesn't just give us what we want when we want it. He gives us the answer that we need in order to change, in order to grow in our faith, in our relationship with him. He gives us the answer that maybe would change our desires from being selfish and covetous or whatever the issue is. He gives us what we need to hear, and that's what Jesus is doing. If Jesus said, okay, sure, where's your brother? Brother, just come on, split it up. Come on, what are you guys doing? That wouldn't have helped the man at all. Would it have given him what he wanted? It would. But would that end the issue there? No, his heart is still fixated on more and more. It would be a temporary fix to a problem that will continue on. Once he has the inheritance, what's the next thing he's going to crave? So rather than delivering a verdict, Jesus delivers a warning. Be on guard against all covetousness. Puritan Thomas Watson describes covetousness as an insatiable desire of getting the world. Insatiable desire of getting the world. Just want it all. 
And covetousness, it's not a rich-only issue. It's not a poor-only issue that if I just had enough, I wouldn't long for more. Or if I, if I didn't have so much, maybe I wouldn't crave so much. It is a heart issue. And that's why Jesus gives this warning. Be on guard. It sneaks up on us. We may not even detect it. So be on the lookout for yourself. It's an attack from the inside out. We are like a Trojan horse walking around with an army of covetousness sneaking up inside us. Be on guard against it. Recognize it. Check our motives. How do we guard our hearts against coveting, against greed, against selfishness? Have hearts of thanksgiving. Give thanks for what you have. Think about it. Charles Spurgeon once said, as long as we are receivers of mercy, we must be givers of thanks. I think this text is so providentially placed coming off of Thanksgiving, moving into the Christmas season. Right? Like two days ago was Black Friday. I mean, that's like the coveting holiday of the world. <laughs> like there's so many deals, I can have so much stuff. Thankful for what God has provided. And I'm not saying don't get deals. Like I don't want to like, oh, Pastor Ricky's against Black Friday. I'm not. I love saving money. But but you're not, small rant, you're not saving money if you just go buy more stuff than you would have just because it's on sale. But when you, look at the, when you look at the flyers, when you look at the ads, and you're just seeing, oh, I want this, I want this, and you're thirsting after all the stuff I could have, be on guard against that. This is a season where we get wrapped up in maybe the things that we just are craving, the, we get sad over what we don't have but we can be thankful for what God has given us. Possessions, people, circumstances. It's Paul in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians who says, uh, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We need to be thankful for what God has given us. Because, like Jesus says here, Life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. Our lives is not Super Mario Brothers where we're just going around to collect coins. Literally getting an extra life with a hundred coins. Like, that's not what it's about. It's not about an abundance of our possessions. How much we have, how much we don't have, in the long run, it does not matter. No one can take it with them. I think of these Egyptian tombs you see all the time, these pharaohs buried with all this treasure. Well, did the pharaohs have the treasure? No, because we found the treasure. And people are cursed now because they start sniffing around pyramids, but... <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I can't not make comments, and that's the... I don't have that traffic light in my head that says, stop. <laughs> but we can't take it with us. We can recognize that. We can, be, we can have stuff put in our caskets with us, but it's staying here. It's not going with us. It's not going anywhere. And it's never going to truly and deeply satisfy. 
Because there's only one soul-satisfying treasure, and that is Christ. And to illustrate this point, Jesus tells this parable. Verse 16, and he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So Jesus sets the scene, right? There's a rich man has a field. And it's a good year. It's producing a good amount of crops. It's producing plentifully. And it starts with the man asking a pretty solid question. What shall I do? For I have, no, what, I have nowhere to store my crops. He has an overabundance. He has nowhere to keep them. Good question. And there could have been some good answers to that question. Well, if I have too much and I don't have enough room for it all, maybe I could give some away to the poor. I have too much. I can't use it. Maybe somebody else could use it. Maybe if you don't want to give it away, I'll give you that. You harvested. Kudos to you. Sell it cheaper. Get rid of it. There's, there's good answers to that good question. But when we look at this parable that Jesus tells, we look at the, the pronouns used throughout it, what other people could do with the crops was never a thought in the man's head. Look what he says. What shall... I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The sheer amount of I in my statements clear that he is self-centered because a greedy heart reveals our own self-centeredness it's so easy to think how can this benefit me before we think how can this bless others it's 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 so easy we can't that's why jesus says to be on guard against it because we don't even recognize it it's just innate because of the problem of sin and its work in our heart we think how what can i get out of this So, so the, a parable like this, so we could look at that man and go, well, he really is a rich fool. It can act as such a mirror for us. And I, I again, it's probably just the time of season, but this story made me think of uh, the classic tale, A Christmas Carol. Right? Ebenezer Scrooge's selfishness and his greed that isolated him from everyone pushed people away because he was so fixated on what he wanted, and it took him getting really knocked upside the head by those spirits and showing him the folly and where it's going to lead that brings him back around again. That's why Jesus tells a story like this. It's a warning, a gracious warning. Our self-centeredness will push others away in our pursuit of whatever it is, possessions, people, The man in this parable is also seems somewhat thankless. 
Right? His bounty comes from God, who controls the very land that the crops grew out of, and he treats his blessing as though he had done something and made it happen. Something he achieved. What can I do with my crops? It's an issue of ownership versus stewardship. We think we own everything that we have. Like, we think it's, it's, all, it's all ours. I worked for it. I own it. It's mine. If it has my name on the deed, that's, that's mine. Maybe from an earthly standpoint, that would be correct. Someone can't just come and take it from you. That is stealing, and that is wrong. But the reality of it is that we truly, ourselves, own nothing. God is the ultimate owner of all things, all that, we ha- all that we have. He truly owns it. And he gives and he takes away. We own nothing. He owns everything. And that's a humbling thought because we so often think, of, oh, I got all this, I got, I got everything invested over here, I have all my affairs in order, this is, this is mine to do what I want with, everything is mine. But it's God who's over it all. Sovereign over every last red cent. Every last piece of food in the cupboard. God owns it. We are called to be good stewards of what God has blessed us with and given us. Now, being a good steward, does that mean this guy shouldn't have stored up his, his, his grain? Should he have just given it all away? No, of course not. Like, there's wisdom in, in storing what we need to survive and looking ahead to the future and saying, I want to have this so that my family's provided for it, so that we're taken care of. There's wisdom in, in saving what we need to in our resources that God has given us. But God doesn't only care, uh, call us to care for ourselves. That's not the only thing. He calls us to care for others. He calls us to think of his kingdom above our own. He calls us to give, to give to the church, to give to the poor, to give to our neighbor. He's given to us abundantly, and out of that abundance, we should give. Because as Jesus says, one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. So it's not that storing it and and, and keeping it is bad. We all have that junk room where we store stuff that we don't want anybody to see. But what does this guy do? Instead, when he has this overabundance, he doesn't just store it. He says, I'm actually going to tear down what I have, and I have to build bigger storage facilities so I can store this all to keep it for myself. He wants to, to really relish in this crop. He wants to dive into it like Scrooge McDuck in the beginning of DuckTales. If you, anyone watching 90s cartoons, that one's for you. I'm going all over And if you're curious if this problem is still prevalent today, I was reading that there's 2.8 billion square feet of rentable storage space in the United States. Think of how many, uh, you're driving down the road, all of a sudden you just see a storage unit that wasn't there the day before, and it's just, boom, storage facility. We have storage all over the place. Sometimes for practical reasons, but oftentimes because we just can't let go. We have this this desire for more and more. I don't want to get rid of what I have. 
I don't have enough room in my house. I got to go get something else. I need more space to store it. We are a people who like our stuff. And it's clearly not a new issue. 2,000 years ago this was happening. We go back to Genesis and we see it happening. And once he has everything stored, he wants to just sit back and indulge for the years to come. Talking to himself. Saying, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This is hedonism. This is the, this elevation of personal pleasure over and above everything else. My getting enjoyment for myself, my having pleasure is more important than anything else that could possibly come up. That's hedonism. And he's storing up his grain so he can take pleasure in it. He sees it and he says, now I can relax because I have what I need. He has the precious. This is his purpose in life. But Pastor John Piper, he offers a different kind of hedonism in his book, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. The idea of being a Christian hedonist is fleshed out throughout the entirety of that book, but but it's summed up in really two key phrases. The first one is a slight adaptation of the answer to the question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And the second statement he makes is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So it's not that the pursuit of pleasure is bad so long as that pleasure that we're pursuing is found in God himself, in Christ. That's the Christian hedonist doesn't chase pleasure for pleasure's sake, but chases and seeks God to receive the pleasure of knowing him. We glorify God by enjoying him forever. He needs to be our ultimate source of joy and satisfaction. Eat, drink, be merry in God. Relish in the gospel, drink deeply of his word, be merry in the grace and the hope that we have in Jesus. It's complete perspective change. There's only one, one soul-satisfying treasure, and that is Christ. This man, however, is seeking to satisfy his soul with earthly treasure. And in his moment of dreaming of the glory that's in front of him, talking to himself in a really weird way, resting in his kingdom, he's giving a, given a sober reminder of a reality of a greater kingdom and a greater king. These last two verses, 20 and 21. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The man who thought he was so wise in storing up all of his treasure is actually shown to be foolish. The word in the Greek is aphron, meaning without reason, senseless, stupid, without reflection or intelligence. 
It's the same thing Jesus says to the Pharisees when he's giving them the woes. He says, you fools. Throughout the scriptures, when we see foolishness, it's in opposition to godly wisdom. The fool is the one who scoffs at God. The fool is the one who, who does what is right in his own eyes. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. The man in this parable, he made himself and his stuff God. He's acting as an atheist. He's living out Psalm 14.1. Grain is his God. He sits on the throne. And God steps in and just shows him the folly of that mistake. The one who not only gave this plentiful bounty to him, the one who gave the man life itself is telling him, your time has come. Fool! This night your soul is required of you. Your days on this earth are over. I'm God. I give. I take away. Did you honestly think what you had was yours? That you had control over it? You spent all this time worrying about how you're going to store it, how you're going to just love it. You're going to indulge. But now, your soul is required of you. Whose grain is this even going to be? Not yours. What value does this grain have now? Jesus is telling this parable. Everyone's listening to this answer that he's given this guy who stood up and said, tell me, tell my brother to give me half of his inheritance. Everyone listening is hearing that if you decide to elevate your pursuit over possessions, over pleasures, over coveting anything, if that is your endless pursuit, you are a fool. He's letting us know that today. That if, if anything is our ultimate pursuit other than God himself, we are foolish. Because what we will be left with after all of that hunting, after all that work, after all that storing up, is nothing. Whose will it be? There's only one soul-satisfying treasure, that is Christ. I'm reminded of the parable uh, of the hidden treasure in, in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which the man found and he covered up. And in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field. Are we willing to look at everything we have stored up around us, everything in our lives, and say, none of this matters compares, compared to knowing Jesus? compared to knowing Christ? Am I able to, to, and willing to let it all go if it means I get Christ, if I get restored relationship with my father that was broken because of sin? If I get redemption, is it, would I be willing to let it all go? Our gut reaction is like, yeah, 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 I would, but we gotta think about that, don't we? We willing, everything, anything, is God enough? Is he truly that treasure, hidden, that we would be willing to part with anything to have? 
One time when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, The first is love the Lord your God with all your, whole, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. If we put our faith in Christ and believe truly that he is our only hope, our only security, our only satisfaction, our only joy, our only peace, our only comfort, then out of that, the rest of life flows. You love God, and out of that comes a love for others. Then there's no room for this covetousness in our heart when it's fixed on Christ. When he is what's satisfying. That's called gospel centrality. That's what, we, that's what we preach here. That's what we say we are a gospel-centered church. Why? Because everything flows out of the goodness and the grace that we've been shown in Christ. We love because he loved us, and we give because he gave his life as a ransom for us. Everything should flow out of that motivation of a love for God because of the love that he's shown us. Being rich in the things of this life, pleasure, possessions, whatever, and being fixated on them as the pinnacle of our existence will lead to selfishness, will lead to pride, will lead to greed, and ultimately will lead to death. Right? That's what Jesus says. He tells everyone, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Being rich in the things of this life and the, the, the things, the treasure that's laid up for ourselves will lead to an eternity without hope. We will not have the pleasures of eternal paradise because we sought first the pleasures of this world. But being rich in God, being rich toward God, is being fixated on Him as the pinnacle of our existence, glorifying Him, enjoying Him forever. His kingdom first everything else second. All we have is by God's grace. Not for our own possession, but to be used for the sake of living out the gospel. Being, living out those two commands, love God, love people. Declare and demonstrate the goodness of the gospel that we've been shown. What we do with what we have is a reflection of our hearts. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, he says, For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ means there's no greater purpose while I'm on this earth to live except for that of, for Christ and the gospel and his kingdom. No greater purpose. And to, to die is gain means if I die, so what? I just get to gain the one I've been living for and I get to be with him forever and ever. He's the prize I've been waiting for, so death is gain anyway. His, his whole focus is on Christ and life and death. Where are we focusing our attention? Are we trying to store up as much as we can in this life so we can experience as much pleasure that we can here and now? Are we just trying to, to make this big heaping pile of treasure to sit on so we can say, look what I have I can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Will we hear the words of Jesus this morning? He says, be on guard against covetousness. 
Run from such folly. Repent of what you've been chasing that's not Christ and run to Jesus. He offers that grace. He gives this warning, not just as a condemnation, but so people have the opportunity to see the error so we can see where we fall short and we can say, God, forgive me. And we can repent. We can go to Jesus. And when we confess our sins, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us. Put your faith and trust in Christ. Make today the day where you say, I'm not going to live for myself and my kingdom, but I want to live for yours, the eternal kingdom, the one that truly satisfies. Because life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. When Jesus is the perfect example of what it means to not covet, he had everything and more in glory. He actually could have said to himself, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But there was work to be done. What does Paul tell us in Philippians chapter 2? Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had it all. And he willingly left glory, became a man, lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died an atoning death on the cross for our sin. He emptied himself. The man in the story is trying to fill himself with everything. Christ gave himself for us, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price that Jesus paid, his shed blood on the cross. All that we have is of grace. And because Christ gave himself for you and me, we need to say, I can't cling tightly to any of it. I can't cling tightly to the things of this world. I must cling firmly to Christ. It's not about the abundance of the possessions. There's only one soul-satisfying treasure, and that is Christ. Cling to Him. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to respond with the song. We just sang this a couple weeks ago, but we're going to respond with cling to Christ. Before I close in prayer, let me just read verse 3. It says, Father, all my earthly aims in time will turn to dust. Let me learn that loss is gain for those who know your love. All the treasures of this world will never satisfy. You alone are endless joy, so I cling to to Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for this word, for this parable, that you, we pray that you would reveal to us those things that we are chasing and craving, thirsting after that aren't you that you would help us to confess that, repent from it, run from it, and run to you. That we would see truly that you are beautiful, that you are that treasure in the field. 
and that you would be our only and ultimate pursuit. Help us to cling firmly to you. Help us to take great joy in the grace that we've been shown. That you would give us hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've given to us. And that we would know that it's from your hand and that we would be content. Father, help us as a family to be on guard against all greed and covetousness and selfishness and pride and everything that creeps up that keeps us from growing in that relationship with you. Help us get that out of the way. Help us pursue you. Help us to cling to Jesus as our only soul-satisfying treasure. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.